To stay informed about Depolarize, Reconstruct, and any future podcast projects of mine, go to dancokewords.com and join the email list. Welcome to what might be kind of a weird episode of the Depolarized Podcast. I'm Dan Koch. And I'm Ellen Morrow. This week, we're going to look at polarization through two very specific lenses, social media and mental health, specifically my lifelong struggle with anxiety. Now, you might wonder, how is social media related to polarization? But also mental health plays into both social media and polarization. There are studies now that link high social media use and depression among millennials. Here's a quote from one of those studies. Those who used seven or more platforms had more than triple the risk for anxiety and depressive symptoms compared to those who use between zero and two social media platforms. Here's another quote from the National Institute of Health. Researchers found that those who used social media the most were about 2.7 times more likely to be depressed than those who used such forums the least. We're going to link to these articles in the show notes, but like, look, there's a relationship between high social media use and mental health, and there's also a relationship between social media use and polarization, which we've talked about a lot, right? Right, yeah. Echo chambers. So polarized media thrives on hysteria, fear, panic, tribal dog whistles, none of which lead to a sense of mental peace, right? And all of which can, at least in my experience, increase anxiety and depression. Yeah, I mean, you and I have almost polar opposite anxiety disorders. We've been diagnosed with different things. So I feel what I deal with is completely irrational. When I'm saying irrational, I mean choice of beans to buy at the grocery store. Yeah, I feel what you feel when you think about the end of... The end, end times. Of the world, yeah, end times. Yeah. I'm I'm in Safeway. <laughs> so, but then when an emergency yeah. happens, I'm fine. Huh. Okay. So we have so different. It manifests opposite. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. So because we have this podcast, I'm gonna self indulge a little bit today, and we're gonna tell my story with the help of some friends and even my mother about the relationship between anxiety and social media use in my own life, and how it is that I came to give up Twitter and Facebook. But first, Ellen, I feel like I have to ask permission for something before we do this. Okay, what? So can we take the next hour and talk about me? Talk about me and we'll talk about me. Talk about me and we'll only talk about me. Can we please take Ellen, can we? It's ridiculous. <laughs> but can we? Sure. Okay. It's your podcast. All right. Well, I'm thank here for you. the wine. So, <laughs> so I've struggled with anxiety my whole life. Let me just give you a quick table of contents, a whirlwind tour through all of my most serious panic triggers. This is not all of them. And then we'll dive later into each of them. You ready? Yeah. Third grade, I was irrationally afraid of thunder. Sixth grade, someone at my school gives me a fear-mongering book about Jesus returning the following September. Was it another was it another sixth grader? <laughs> no, it was a teacher. That's weird. Or a mom or somebody. It was an adult. That's I'm, weird. I don't know who it was, but I've never forgiven them. Okay. It freaked me out for months 
And really for years, I had anxiety about the end times. In 2007, I had to leave the studio in the middle of recording a friend's album. Because you were having a panic attack? Because of panic, yeah. In 2012, I was afraid that there were zombies in Florida. <laughs> I, I sort of was. Wait, I mean, wait, I didn't wait, really, wait, we'll get into it. Dude, I didn't that, really believe it. Wait them. a minute. This was the face-eating. The face-eating guy, oh, yeah. Oh, okay. bath salts. Bath salts, okay. yes. And then in 2015, Donald Trump announced his candidacy for the presidency. It's so ridiculous. Why? That that made me afraid? No, it's just everything leading up to that was really, I think, rational. And then all of a sudden, as a 30-year-old... <laughs> he gets to zombies. And in Florida, specifically. <laughs> well, that would have been where it was happening. Yeah. And I was... We'll talk about it more. But anyway, so... Then Trump, in 2015, became a panic trigger. Actually scary. Well, maybe. So, okay, let's look at these in a little bit more detail, right? So, first of all, thunder. In third grade, I remember every morning I would wake up and I would obsessively watch the weather report to see if it was going to rain that day. Not that I was afraid of rain and not that I was afraid of lightning, only insofar as they would bring thunder. And I wanted to be sure that it wouldn't thunder. Now, I interviewed my mom for this episode, and I expected her to remember this obsession with thunder because she was a good parent. She did not remember it. I don't really remember you being anxious about a lot of things, but I remember you in the 1989 earthquake being very calm and... You and I sat in the doorway and waited till the earth started shaking. And then we had to wait about five hours for your dad to get home from work. But we sat on the front lawn and all the neighbors came out and I didn't see any real anxiety. But I don't know if that was something that started to build anxiety in you as a child. Every morning I'd watch, I'd have, I'd have the weather report oh, on the news. I think I do remember you asking me once what to do if it thunders when you're at school. I had to always have a sense that I was in control. I'm Obviously, I wasn't in control. You're not really in control of anything. But I created the things around me for me to feel in control. I want to save my next chronological anxiety trigger, which is end times, and skip ahead to 2012, right to Central Florida. You remember these stories, right? You, you mentioned. I remember it because I'm a crime junkie. Okay. The second you said to tw- tw- zombies and 2012, I knew ex- and Florida, I knew exactly <laughs> you knew. what you're talking about. Because okay, all well, the worst things in America happen in Florida. Well, I don't know if that's true, but in the last eight to ten years, the worst things in America have happened in Florida. Well, maybe there's something going on. But in case you guys have forgotten, uh, here's a little news clip to refresh your memory. Drugs known as bath salts being blamed for a gruesome scene in Miami. This is a naked man. He was shot dead on Saturday by police because he was gnawing off another man's face. 31-year-old Rudy Eugene was described to be in a zombie-like state when he was caught by police. So I I was on a trip with Jaffrey and my family, and I was already feeling anxious, and I had kind of been drinking caffeine, which I shouldn't do, and I just was not, had not been living in a healthy way, and this story hit, and I was on Twitter, and I, look, at no point did I think zombies are real. Don't get me wrong. It was more like this irrational obsession to check and make sure that zombies aren't real. 
Like kind I, of. I never, if you had asked me, at no point would sure. I have said. Your rational mind knew that zombies yeah, weren't a thing. There's no zombies. I but, knew that. But the second guessing part of you thought. But what if there's some sort of weird yeah. chemical thing happening that is changing people's minds and all right? That? I, yeah, I mean, it could be. It, it might not be like flesh eating. You know, it might not be like the undead or whatever. But it could be some maybe a virus that's causing people to like or cannibalize. Bath salts. Turns out it was drugs, right? But I would like check. I, okay, I got anxious looking up this clip. Like it made me feel anxious to find this clip because this, this is how anxiety triggers I'm work. Sorry, I shouldn't. No, it's okay. Shouldn't they, be it is funny. They never really go away. They don't totally go away. Like to this day, if I see someone a news clip of like this guy claims to be Jesus, it does make me feel right. anxious, mm-hmm. even if I think there's no chance that he's right. So what I ended up doing was Twitter was the way that I sort of self medicated. I would search for like zombie or Florida Damn. or whatever. And of course this did not help. Just no accountability. <laughs> I had no accountability. There's a, there's a lyric in a motion city soundtrack song that I love that goes, my panic research was no help. That line describes me when I'm anxious. My panic research did not help. So it's let's It's also move. a great tagline for WebMD. <laughs> WebMD. I saw a meme uh, yesterday that said, I just searched all my symptoms on WebMD and it says I should have been dead. Apparently I've been dead for six years. (laughs) I wish WebMD would do a better job of like starting with the more innocuous things that it might be. Like start me off with common cold. Don't start me with brain cancer, you know? Let's build up to brain Maybe cancer. Maybe you need to change your laundry detergent or <laughs> you have a brain tumor. Yeah. <laughs> now let's go back in time chronologically to sixth grade. End times, antichrist, tribulation, being left this behind. This was the weird tract that uh, was tract that was a thing back then. Yeah, people would like pass out tracts. Yeah. Brochure or something mm-hmm. that you got. No, it wasn't a track. It was a book. And I, I can't find it online. I've been trying to sort of find it. Do you remember it. the cover of it? I, I sort of remember what the cover looked like. And the subtitle was 96 Reasons Why Jesus Christ Will Return in the Fall of 1996. Something like that. Wow. Okay. It was the spring of 1996 okay. when I received this book. Have you ever gotten home, especially when you were a kid, did you ever get home, couldn't find anyone in your family, and you thought, They've been raptured. This is it, the rapture. Yeah. And then you would go to their bedroom and find their clothes. <laughs> That's what you would be afraid of. Yeah. <laughs> That's happened to me at least 10 or 15 times in my life. Even <laughs> since I stopped believing in the rapture, it still happens to me. Now, I think we should do a little bit of a recap of this theology because some people listening will totally know what we're talking about and some people will have no idea. Because we're talking about end times in the rapture. and Right. Um, but first, let's see if this song might shed a little light on it for us. Oh, boy. Hallelujah, I'll see you in the rapture. I'll see you in the rapture. I'll see you at the meeting in the end. Oh, there with our blessed Savior. It's bizarre. <laughs> Where did you even find that? Uh, uh, the answer is I went to some dark corners of the web 
for this? I mean, they sound really, really happy and excited to be with Jesus and the other people in the rapture. So that's nice. Yeah, they're yeah. they're really excited. They're not trying to scare you. I went to some deep corners of the web trying to find some of these resources. And let me just tell you that like far right paranoid Christian YouTube is a very interesting place. <laughs> but let's give a little, uh, just a quick background on this theology. So it's end times theology or, you know, premillennial dispensationalism, something like that is the theological name for it. But basically the idea is that Christ talks about a thousand year reign, or maybe it's in Revelation or whatever. And this particular belief says that has not happened yet. What will happen before that is a seven year tribulation, which is taken from the book of Daniel. And there will be an antichrist who will like rule a one world government for most of that time. At the end of that time, Jesus comes back, kills the antichrist. We get a thousand years of sort of Christ ruling on earth. On earth. And at the beginning, and crucially, either at the beginning, in the middle, or at the end, is the rapture, which is, what's the rapture, Ellen? Tell us. Well, the rapture is when the trumpets and the white horse and all the the angels happen. (laughs) This is- That's not true. How much I know. You don't know. Okay. Well, then we we get taken and then our clothes are here. Okay. You do remember the movie. So the rapture is all the Christians of the world, everyone that- actually is saved. Like right, right now, whoever's actually saved disappear all at once. Everybody. See, in my mind, everyone we else get, stays. Like, I watched all of X-Files. So in my mind, I picture us just kind of blue, blue, loop up to the sky. Well, so there is kind of that language in, in. Okay. So Paul it's says, okay. Meeting up I... in the sky. Yeah, that's fine. But so the idea is, <laughs> I don't want to spend too much time on the rapture. So the book Left Behind, oh, the book series. Oh, we're talking about your sixth grade. Yeah, well, we'll get there. So okay. the book Left Behind is a reference to the people who are not raptured. That's what's important. Okay. The people who are left here. Who are left to go through the tribulation with the Antichrist, with the deterioration of the world before its ultimate chaotic ending when Jesus comes back. That's the idea. Okay. So the, the book that I got was in relation to all of this stuff. And I wasn't so much worried about the tribulation when I was in sixth grade. Because you you thought to yourself that you're a Christian and you don't have to worry about Yeah, going I wasn't to hell worried about not being saved. I was worried about like never seeing a woman naked. Oh my God. <laughs> I was a sixth grade boy. <laughs> I wanted to live my life. I wanted to have kids. I wanted to like, okay, listen to this. I have actual memories, Ellen, of praying wait, to God. I need a minute. <laughs> you need a minute? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> I have actual memories of praying to God, God, I don't need to have sex with a woman before you come back. I just want to be in the room naked with one. I didn't even have the hormones yet. I didn't have the hormones. I didn't know what I'd want to do. That's incredible. That's incredible. So, look, anyway. I did not see that coming. (laughs) So I asked my mom if she remembered this stuff. And well, she's definitely not going to remember those details because <laughs> you did not tell her that. I didn't share those prayers with her. Oh, my god! But I, I wondered if she remembered this whole kind of episode in my life. No, but I understand that you have that fear because I was raised with that same fear from my dad. But I don't think I let my parents talk about that in front of you. Do you 
you feel bad for me? I do feel <laughs> now that I'm a, a parent. Yeah. If Phoebe was ever afraid of the end times in six, yeah, it's just not something ain't right with that. Right. I know. Too soon. Really quick. I don't want to spend a lot of time on the theology, but I just think that rapture theology is really bad. It's based on a weird reading of Paul. You, you can look somewhere else up if you want to read more into it. But I stopped believing in the rapture around college. I've always had a fear about what I'm supposed to do when Jesus comes back. Mm. So I've felt like this for several years where, you know, we'll hear the trumpets and Jesus will come back. And how we'll know, I don't know. Maybe we'll, we'll get notifications, we'll yeah. Amber Alerts. <laughs> Amber Alert, Jesus then, has returned. <laughs> but then I really worry that I don't, I'm not going to know like what to do or where to go because I haven't been reading scripture and I'm not like... Oh, this is interesting. Don't say that because that freaks me out even more. No, it, it's I, psychologically interesting. I worry that I have sort of distanced myself and kind of checked out of my walk with Jesus and my theology enough to where I don't know the rules so that if and when Jesus comes back when I'm alive, I'm not going to go to the right place or I'm going to get, I'm not going to. Ellen, what you need is my new three-day prophecy seminar. (laughs) It's only $4.99, takes place in (laughs) Southern Idaho. And a lot of like-minded fundamentalists will be there. rapture. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, see, no, I, that's you. why I like those people singing, because they were like, hey, I'll just see you there. I'll just There's see no you at the rapture. No, you don't no have rules. to worry about yeah. what to do. We could psychoanalyze why you think you don't know the rules for after Jesus' return. That's really fascinating, but I don't know that we should go there today. Okay. So back to the timeline. 1996, I get the book, 96 Reasons Why Christ Will Return in the Fall of 1996. So in eighth grade, then we study the book of Revelation in my Bible class at school. I suck it up. I stay in class, but I'm just rife with anxiety for a couple hours every day for a whole semester. That's unbelievable. Finally in college, I do some reading about the actual theology. Like my brain has developed enough to think about theology. Which is why I would point out that maybe we shouldn't be having Revelation classes in eighth grade. Certainly not. But so in college, I read about it. I go, oh, this is like really flimsy theology. It's 150 years old. No serious biblical scholars believe this. And that started helping me. And so I learned that I have to learn about things to remove anxiety. But these kind of anxiety triggers don't just go away because they are unlikely to be true. Zombies, for instance. (laughs) Right? So fast forward to 2007. Sherwood has three weeks off in between tours. And I'm making an album with my friend Jonathan Jones for his brand new band. That's we a cool shot the name, moon. Jonathan Jones. Jonathan Jones. Jonathan Jones. You're going to hear his very cool voice in a second here. So I get back to my hotel room one night. I've been quite anxious the whole time. And I turn on 60 Minutes or Dateline or Frontline or something like that. And they're profiling this guy. In a tattoo parlor on trendy South Beach. You did the 666 really big? Yeah sat the daughter of the man who claims to be God. Joanne de Jesus is one of several dozen members of a religious sect called Crescienda en Gracia, or Growing in Grace. They were tattooed on their arms, ankles, even their necks with 666, the biblical sign of the Antichrist. Why? Because their spiritual leader says he is the Antichrist, 
not the embodiment of evil, but rather the second coming. 666, Antichrist means do not put your eyes on Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Put it in Jesus after the cross. And that's you. That's me. You know what I'm realizing now, Ellen? Florida. Yeah, yeah I'm telling you. The common I'm denominator. You, look it up, man. Weird stuff happens in I Florida. I started noticing it with Casey Anthony and Jody Arias. Hmm. And then I realized, oh, it's all just Florida might be the Antichrist. <laughs> That's awful. To any of our listeners in Florida, oh, we love I you. I love Florida. I love going there. I don't ever go there. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. I just felt bad. You've never been? No, I've been. Yeah, you did you like it? Oh, sure. Okay, that's fine. But Miami's sinking. So this is this one hit all my triggers, right? It was a guy claiming to be the Antichrist. He was getting people to get 666 tattoos, right? Which is supposedly the mark of the beast. I interviewed Jonathan Jones about this to see what he remembered, not just about that night, but about how anxious I had been during the making of the album. When was it clear to you that I was going through something rough? Hmm... Maybe like three quarters of the way through. And, you know, me being an emotional guy, I, it was confusing because I'm like, is he mad at me or something? Yeah. Or, yeah, you, we were, you know, we were 23, right? Yeah, it was confusing just because it wasn't real evident until you just got up and left. I was like, oh, my gosh, I blew it. Or like, what happened? Did did I do something wrong? Was I like not good enough? I mean, you just said you had a panic attack, and at the time, I didn't even know that that was even a thing. I, it, to me, it sounded like an excuse. But so the, it doesn't surprise me that you were a little blindsided by it and that I just kind of took off because I didn't even know what it was at the time. And then there was the infamous night of the panic attack. Do you remember anything about that night or the next morning or what I said to you? Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but it gets a little fuzzy there because in my head, I remember you left a note, just left a note. Oh, really? Like, I, I swear, I? like, I woke up <laughs> or no, it was a note and a text. That's all I remember. I, I don't remember, but it all happened so fast. Like, I don't remember a face to face that we like even talked about it as it was happening. That wasn't very cool of me. It wasn't very cool. And how scary for you, for someone else. That's not knowing what's going on. I know. I didn't, I just didn't know what I was dealing with. I didn't have the language for it yet. So other than the minor Florida blip in in 2012, from 2007 to 2015, I got better and better and better. I stopped drinking caffeine I didn't require really any medication. I sort of understood, okay, I have anxiety. It's a kind of a disorder in me and I'll be dealing with it forever, but I'm getting better at dealing with it. And then in 2015. Brand new Fox polls show Donald Trump and Ted Cruz leading the pact in the GOP nomination race among Republican primary voters. Trump at 35%. Cruz at 20%. But in New Hampshire, Donald Trump appears more dominant than ever. At 33%, his support is more than double that of his closest competitor, Marco Rubio. Trump's up six points since November in that state. Are you being triggered right now? No, I'm honestly, I'm not, which I'm very grateful for. Now, if you recall my reaction to the zombie stories, what do you think I started doing compulsively at this point? 
Well, I hate to think of the dark places that you went. The Twitter, of course. I searched Twitter. Twitter, like, remembered my search item for, like, a hashtag, which was, like, Trump polls or something like that, just 10 times a day for months. And, of course, that just made it worse, right? What were you looking for? I mean, what? Evidence that his poll numbers were dropping. That's what I was looking for. Oh, okay. So you were tracking, at that point, you needed that to diminish and it was giving you a lot of anxiety. So you needed to see proof that those numbers were going down. So, you know, there's some sort of rational worry or anxiety, but then there's the compulsive activity, mostly on Twitter, right? And it starts to build and cascade on itself. And even by the time we started Depolarize, the time I started it in 2016, so a year and five months or so after this moment, it was hard for me to do it. Like Trump was still at the center of my anxiety and Trump was at the center of the podcast and actually doing this show was like exposure therapy. And I think the reason you asked me, are you being triggered right now? And the reason that I'm not is because I just, I exposed myself to Trump because I figured out at some point I'm going to have to live in this world, especially if he wins. And all along, I noticed a connection between my social media use and my felt experience of anxiety or low level kind of panic simmering. And so I started to read up on what happens to people who use social media a lot. I mentioned www.webmd.com slash social media use. (laughs) I found Dr. Donna Freitas, who did a nationwide study of college students and social media. And I was actually able to interview her. Here she is. I went to 13 different colleges and universities all over the United States, all different types, all kinds of rankings public, private, secular, Catholic, evangelical. And then I did an online survey with about 900 some odd students. And it was all essays, all essays and then short answers. And then I did about 200 one-on-one in-depth interviews. One of the statements of one of your respondents that was particularly cutting was she said, me going on social media is me bringing the worst version of myself looking at the best version of everybody else. Yes. She was, or she is, this beautiful, brilliant young woman. She was in the honors program at her university. She was at a giant Southern university, and she was at the top sorority on campus, and she was like VP of her sorority. So she was just utterly at the top of the food chain at this school. And she's just stunning. She like lost into the interview room and she's got her hair in a ponytail and she's in her sorority sweats. And she looked like she was about to be in a movie. Like she was just gorgeous. And the whole interview was about how social media is so awful for her self-esteem. And so what she said was, you know, every time I go on social media, even though I know that everybody's lying, because she was very angry about that. She talked about how everybody lies. The only thing people put up online is, you know, their happiest pictures and their most amazing experiences. And she, because she was talking about how she was like, I do this too. That's what I do too. That's what we all do. And she was like, even though I know that, that everything it's fake, that everybody's like faking amazingness online, it doesn't change the fact that when I go on social media, it's always the worst version of me versus the best version of everybody else. And she said that so intensely. And I heard that expressed in some way, shape or form from so many students. But she said that in this very succinct way. And like, think about that. Going on social media 
is always the worst version of me versus the best version of everyone else. And so she felt like when she goes online, she's all of who she is. Like she's the real her. She's the person who has ups and downs and sadnesses and heartbreak and, you know, struggles with school or, you know, disappointments in life. And yet when she's scrolling, all she sees is gloriousness. And so if you're having a day where you feel lonely or where your friends aren't, you know, maybe, you know, you, you didn't, they didn't include you or something, or you're feeling, you're feeling unappealing, like all you're seeing is everybody's wonder. And so it just makes you feel even worse about yourself or even lonelier or even sadder. So we're talking about what sort of happens organically on the surface, right? When I log into Instagram and if I just go to someone's profile, I'm going to see them putting their best foot forward, meaning they are going to only choose to post things that are more exceptional or cute or funny or whatever. But there's another layer here too, right? I mean, there is the Facebook or Instagram or Twitter algorithm, which wants to show me the stuff that got the most responses that is the most, you know, awesome experience that people are sharing that has the most likes, you know, the the baby announcements, the baby bump photos for people my age, for younger people, the trip to Indonesia, the trip to Europe. There's another element here as well, right? That's actually even compounding the personal decision to post only one's best self. There used to not be a Facebook feed. You literally would just go to someone's profile because you wanted to see their profile. There wasn't this constant streaming thing. And I remember when Facebook did that, when they changed it, and it was so controversial. People were freaking out about it, and some people liked it, and some people hated it, and now it's just ubiquitous. And it's just, you know, it's just the way it is. It's as if it's always been that way. And, you know, no one thinks about it anymore. The students that I interviewed spend a lot of time, like a lot of time, thinking about how to game the system, you know, like how to get high up on the feed and what things do it because they're worried about likes. They're worried about making sure that they have successful posts. Some of the students feel ashamed if they put up a picture or like a profile picture and it doesn't get a certain amount of likes. I had students who spoke about how you have to post certain things at certain times of the day when you get the most traffic. I had one student who told me there's a way to like post it and then repost it so you can double your life. I mean, they, they really are thinking about like, how can I have a successful post to the point where a lot of students talked about how much they hate posting because it's so stressful and because there's so much riding on each post. So, I mean, they really are branding themselves when you think about that. Like they're really carefully crafting something that they hope will be successful and then also trying to post it at just the right moment so it will stay up on the feed and be even more successful. Yeah, I mean, those are the kind of conversations that I have had with my band, right? Like what day of the week is the best time to send a newsletter so that people will read it? That's a very reasonable conversation to have about business strategy. It is blowing my mind that college kids are having the exact same conversations just to like get their own friends to see photos and videos of them. Well, I mean, I think it's not just them though. You know, I would come home from a trip and I'd be out with a friend for a glass of wine and I'd be telling her, you know, Oh, like I had this interview and they said this and they, and then I had this other interview and they said that. And, 
And my, you know, my friends would be like, oh my gosh, I do that. Like, or, you know, oh, like I feel that way too. The study itself is about college students, but the things that they're worried about, the things that they're saying, the stresses they have, I feel like sound pretty universal from the, from just about everyone that I know. And I think there really is a kind of addiction going on. I mean, if you think about it, there's a kind of helplessness in the face of it. So this young woman, Emma, knows it makes her feel terrible, but she can't help doing it. And it's almost like, think about like an alcoholic. You know that it's destructive, but you can't help drinking anyway. You can't help picking up the bottle. I mean, there's a way in which we're social media and our devices specifically. So, you know, smartphones, of course, they're basically social media delivery devices at this point. And so we feel incredible attachment to them. You know, there's a students express such love hate relationships for their smartphones. They cannot imagine that they feel twitchy if they're away from it, but they also loathe the thing. You know, they feel, um, they feel just compelled by it and enslaved by it and addicted to it. It's almost like we're all sitting around with bowls of potato chips and chocolate right in front of our faces. And we can't seem to move the bowls away. We just keep dipping into the bowls. We can't stop ourselves. So I think we also have to forgive ourselves a bit for feeling addicted or for really struggling. But I do think we have to figure out how do we get the bowls off the table. I wish I could get my bowl off the table. (laughs) I, I have taken the bowls off the table, Ellen. I'm off. I'm off all three of those. Does it feel great? It feels quite good. You seem good. zen. I do? More zen. Would- okay. Yeah, a little you more seem zen. more zen. Than- I would, I never seem truly zen, let's be honest. Yeah. But it, it has helped. I feel like a college student. I didn't know that all of those things that she said about her yeah. interviews, I, I would have said those things. Well, but then I sort of pushed her on that and she said, yeah, it's not just college students. I mean, it's like yeah, her, but her friends also report sort of similar things. I know, but I'm in my mid thirties and I'm trying to, so stupid. If I don't get 200 likes, it's like. Really? You do have this. Okay. So you go through this process. Oh, you have it. 100%. You know what the number is. I know to not, well, for me, 200 is sort of like a, everybody has sort of like a cap. To, yeah, right? sure. Or so, a, a floor. Oh, you mean a max? Like I need to hit this to feel comfortable. Yeah, a floor. Yeah, to you see, gotta get like to this, enough yeah. people are seeing this and liking this. Now, I'm talking about my my art and my craft. So when I post on Instagram something that I've done, it's a lot when only fifty something, sixty people. Yeah. I mean, it's not, that's not a lot. It's, it, it it's feel, a, it, it it's hurts. heavy. Yeah, it's heavy. It's, yeah. heavy. it's like, okay, well, I am not getting any feedback. No one's telling me what they don't like about this. I just know that this is shit and I'm shit and mm. I should stop doing this yeah. and I should quit. And why did I do this? Why do I even try all of that? But if I yeah. get, you know, 200 plus likes, it's like, okay. So that's kind of my... So I understand the numbers thing that she talked about. That is not as much my experience. Mine is more the addictive part of it. When she talks about they both loathe and love their smartphones. That's the part that sticks out to me of like, I'm checking it. I'm checking it. I'm checking it. I'm checking it constantly. Well, that's why I I told you I got a watch. Did we talk about that with Matt on the back? Yeah, you got a a regular watch. Yeah, a regular watch because I was finding that I would pull out my phone to check the time. Yeah. And then... I would see the time, great, and then well, my thumb yeah, would just well, go. Yeah. My thumb just goes. I don't even tell it to go to Instagram, yep. then Facebook, and all that. Yep. But it just goes. So I got to watch so that it would cut down. I don't know. I'm get. I'm. I'm saying 
23%. Yeah. Okay, good. That's a good amount. (laughs) Yeah. So I also asked Jason Brooks, who is a Harvard-educated educator. That's a weird sentence. He is an educator. He, like, runs a school, and he went to Harvard for his master's, and he, he lives in L.A., about the interaction of social media and political calcification. And this is what he had to say. What's going on in the brains of a hashtag resist progressive American as they unfollow their Trump friends on Facebook and as they consume hours of of Twitter rants about Trump and sort of sink into that identity? What's Mm -hmm. going on in their brains? Drugs. Drugs, 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 drugs. Drugs. Yeah, it's the dopamine hit. It feels really good to be right. Right. So if you go back to your, your time in school where you get a, you know, a hundred out of a hundred, 10 out of 10 on a quiz, that feels good. So it feels good for biologically. There's a, there's a dopamine and serotonin and all these other drugs that release in your brain when you get something right there, there's also a layer of confidence. And this is well documented that when you're both right and then you know, you're right. And somebody's coming against you, there's a righteousness that wells up. So people don't fully understand, and anecdotally might understand this, but don't fully understand that they are in some ways held captive by the drugs in their brain because of their right answers. And it makes it biologically hard because you're literally on a high. So that's where I think we have to ask the spirit to, to cut through that hijacking of our brains. Man, drugs is an interesting way to say it. It, it makes me think about people who either consume a lot of Fox News and who I've, you know, I've had conversations with or people who consume a lot of leftist Twitter. Yeah. Uh, and I, I got off Twitter a few months ago and, you know, it's so funny. <laughs> it was like a drug, except it, it made me anxious ultimately. But, it, yeah. oh, man, did it give me a rush and, and fill a chemical need that I was feeling in my brain. And, and actually, when I'm <laughs> when I've maybe had a few too many drinks, I'm at my weakest the only times that I go back and I go to Twitter again and I just, yeah. oh, I'm just going to scroll. I'm just going to, it's going to light up these neurons. And yeah, right. it's so funny. If if somebody was high, we would say, I don't trust their level-headed Judgment. opinion on this. Yeah, that's and right. yet we don't think that consuming hours of vitriol from Sean Hannity or Rush Limbaugh or hours of vitriol from Bill Maher or Twitter rants, we don't think of it the same way, but we probably should. So like well-documented neuro drug stuff that's happening when you're getting the clicks off of Facebook, social media, Google, Amazon, Facebook got pulled in front of Congress and they had to talk about the way they're using their algorithms and they are, they are leveraging their algorithms knowing that people are addicted to this stuff and knowing that you're going to put something in somebody's Facebook feed where a little dopamine hit and they, they are using those algorithms to keep people addicted to those things. We also know what screens are doing to our young folks. They, 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 we, know, we, we can document now that science is telling that screens are rewiring the way that our young people's brains move. That's a well-documented piece, and we can't not fall into the trap of, of using those tools to validate our identity. We can't fall into the trap of using those tools to validate our position. So the tool of a good Colonel Taylor whiskey is to help celebrate with one or two at the end of a long week and say, you know, job well done. But if I misuse that tool, it will cause damage 
in my life. So the same way, I don't want to misuse the tool of social media that would cause damage and make and literally turn me into a drug addict and literally turn me into somebody who's dependent on a click or a like. And we're seeing it most tragically with our teenagers, right? Well, they'll, they'll put a picture up of a post and if you don't get a certain amount of likes immediately, you know, their identity is attached to getting 20 likes. And that, that, that just can't be the way that we uh, live. So th- if that means you're on Facebook, a few drinks in, guess who else is on Facebook? A few drinks in, <laughs> right? <laughs> and then, and there's no way, and we're interacting with these people as if they're presenting their best self. So you got, you got the distance of a screen and you've got the lubrication of some liquid courage or maybe some other narcotics that are just presenting the worst possible version of yourself. Well, if we go to social media for the dopamine hits, maybe we didn't originally, we started and it was such a fun way to see what our friends were up to and stay connected. But if we know that the algorithms are written to keep us addicted through dopamine hits, Mm -hmm. and then if we know that we go back for those dopamine hits, it's silly to assume that we would then have civil discourse on those platforms. That's right. That's That's right. Who, if they wanted to, for instance, solicit their friend's opinion on a really important part of their life, would go to them right as they're snorting cocaine. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> you, you'd you'd want to sit them down. You might have a beer and be yeah. like, hey, hear me out. I need your help on this. I'm going to give yeah. you 15 minutes of dialogue and then you tell me what you think. But when we are on these platforms, it is precisely the moment at which we're getting our dopamine fix. That's not the time to right. be engaging in the most difficult questions of our day. That's right. Right. And it goes back to what we talked about, too, in terms of like also when you're at your most compromised when your brain is at the most compromised in terms of getting a dopamine fix, your brain also is not in a position to receive or accept new facts or any any distance. So your brain is strung out on a bender, coming back for a fix, needs a hit. And then you're asking to do something that it's already incredibly difficult for it to do when it's in its best spot. So, yeah, I think once you get an understanding of what's happening to your brain, you see how toxic social media really is. And you're like, why the hell am I doing this? Why, what, what good is coming out of this? I remember the first time I heard it, I was like, what? When people through a spiritual formation and spiritual practice, give up social media for Lent or take a break, you know, it's like, oh, that's ridiculous. Like give up something real. And the more I understand about it, I'm like, oh, that is, that is the most real thing you have in your life is to give up, uh, social media. Right? Well, I'll say right now as part of a diet, I'm not drinking alcohol. Yeah. And that has been 10 times easier than it was yeah. to give up Twitter and Facebook. Yeah. Just in yeah. my own experience. So many of our formerly robust institutions in America, places where we could meet and gather. I think of, you know, we're about the same age. I grew up in suburban San Jose, California, and when I was 14 or 15, you know, you were maybe playing basketball on the court. I was going to punk rock shows and there were these all ages clubs and we would go every two or three weeks and we'd all have our spiky hair and our dyed hair. (laughs) We would very safely watch these bands play or institutions like for older people like the Rotary Club, Kiwanis Club, bowling leagues. Robert Putnam talks about the sociologist, the decline of bowling leagues in America. These civic institutions where people can meet up and be heard and find identity in person. It's almost like we've backed ourselves into a corner. For whatever reason, those institutions have declined. We've replaced them with platforms 
with social right. media platforms. And now social media is where I will connect with my friends. I will form my identity or at least I'll I'll do whatever I would have done in a bowling league or what I would have done with a bunch of friends playing Dungeons and Dragons or something like that. Yep. Now I'll do it online. But unfortunately, social media is where I'm getting dopamine hits and I'm addicted to this neurological drug. And so it's like the worst place to be forming that community and that identity. There's something very inorganic about yeah. that. And then if I go off social media, where do I go back to? My That's bowling right. league has shut down. My, you know, whatever it is. What do we do? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't want to be too hyperbolic, but what you're describing is a crisis, right? And it's a crisis of community. And social media fundamentally grates against our nature and our souls and our design. We should lament the loss of the third space, right? The, 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 whether it's a bar or the softball league or the bowling, as you're talking about, or a place where people can come of different stripes and decompress, hear a different perspective that shapes what you're doing. I mean, this is, this is what church softball leagues and accountability groups and men's groups and women breakfasts and yeah. potlucks were all intended to do. They're the third space that's not work or family that helps soothe wounds, that helps celebrate, that helps get people together to, to ultimately shape an, an identity. And now I can literally go my whole life and not meet a Trump voter. I can literally live in a city, in a neighborhood in a city, work a job, and never hear anybody who disagrees with me, anybody who will challenge anything that I think. That's a crisis, right? If somebody was walking with earplugs in, headphones on, a down jacket, and a football helmet on, and was walking off a cliff, that would be a crisis. Right. Well, that's a weird way to put that, but I see what he's saying. <laughs> There's a lot to unpack in that conversation with Jason. We've got the dopamine hits, the algorithms. We've got the fact that we're basically on drugs when we're doing a lot yeah. of this stuff. We've got the loss of that third space. Uh, you know what's what going I, on in your head? You know what I thought about is that I always like to think about, well, what we're dealing with now is just a, a another version of what our parents' generation dealt with and the generation before them. And I think about one of my favorite movies is Bye Bye Birdie. And there's several scenes when the girls would just be on the phone with each other. They were so obsessed with getting home after school and getting on the phone and talking to each other. And it was just, you know, obsession, this obsession with the landline phone. Yeah, yeah. It was such a big deal. And the parents probably had the same conversation. Well, that's probably true for something like a group text, right? Or uh, a WhatsApp group or something like that, where you have, you do get back from school and everybody's talking about the day. you're interacting. That's just between a, a few individuals though, right? Who are in the thing. I do think there's a shift when you go to something posted publicly for an indefinite number of people. And when it's media as well. So let's say if we took media out of this whole equation and Facebook was just, you could only put a comment. Words. No links to just words only. Just words. It wouldn't be the same, I don't think. But even wouldn't be having a crisis. It'd still be different because you would try and put your funniest words or your most interesting words. Yeah. And then how many people liked it? Yeah, yeah. You'd still have that issue. So there is, you know, the landline. You know, hogging the landline to talk to your friend after school is kind of like texting with your friend. I think those are basically the same. I mean, and and even then, you know, you get a dopamine hit from hearing from your friend or whatever, and that's fun. But you're still talking about basically one-on-one or small group communication, which has always existed in human history. You could always talk to a friend. 
in human history. Now you're doing it on the phone or you're doing it through text. It's kind of the same thing. And we're differentiating that between this sort of like public podium. Yeah. Here's me with my girlfriend and I'm looking for a certain number of people to like it. And I'm sending it to literally everyone I know or as many of them. as I really hope they'll all see it and like it. And the, the dopamine hits, the serotonin back from that are stronger. You see the comments coming in. You see the likes coming in. You get a little notification on your phone every time one of 75 people like a photo of yours. It is just different. Did you have your notifications on? I turned my notifications off everything except calendar and phone. Yeah, I can't About a year ago. Yeah, I can't stand it. And I will never go back to you having notifications. What's the worst on Facebook is someone else posted on this other post that you commented on yeah it's like i don't i was just saying oh th- what a cute picture and then now i get a notification for every time someone else says that's a cute picture but you see how it's in their interest like yeah for facebook if you spend 50 percent more time on facebook facebook makes 50 percent more money the only way that facebook makes money is advertising if you're still on it that's it That's all they do. That's all they make money on. You keep clicking. You stay on Facebook. That's only if you click on stuff. Well, every time you refresh or you, you know, scroll down, there might be a sponsored thing in your feed. The more time time you see something paid, that's the only way they make money. I think I'm going to get off of Facebook tonight. Well, I would be very proud of you if you did that. Now I've got a little treat for you, Ellen. So we'll be hearing more from this special guest. John Foreman, singer of the band Switchfoot, throughout the season. We will hear him talk about how social media can lead to tribal thinking. And we're also going to hear about how he manages to kind of walk the line between different worlds. I think he's an interesting guy in that respect. But related to today's discussion, I asked John about his own social media use. Have you done anything to regulate your own use of social media? Man, I think that's an ever, never-ending challenge. I go through spurts where I will, you know, we were talking about that this morning with some, my friend who's playing drums out with me, Aaron Redfield, and he hasn't been on social media for a couple months, and it is so healthy, I, I feel like, to, to step back and distance yourself and say, okay, it can't be the, the reason why I matter. It can't be my, my meaning, my purpose, my drive, you know, because it can very easily become that. We were meant to live for so much more, but we've lost ourselves, I think is what he's saying. I think he's saying something like that. (laughs) Okay, Ellen, so it's been a while since we talked about me, and I'm getting a little uncomfortable. (laughs) But I'm trying to figure it out in the summer, and I I decided to take a two-month sort of semi-work sabbatical. The way my job works, I still responded to people who wanted to hire me for things, but I, I backed off on some of the regular work that I do. But on day one of this break, I spent three hours on Facebook. <laughs> so in the absence of real work to do, I just followed my default instincts, which led me to scrolling Facebook and commenting and, and arguing with people and whatever. I started not following my own advice. You know, I was arguing with people in the comments. I was using only arguments. I was not asking any questions. I was not empathizing with anybody. I just was sort of, I was not living my best life now. Let's put it that way. (laughs) 
You sound like a troll. And you were trolling. Well, I was not quite a troll, but I was sort of not the best version of me. So I realized like, okay, if I'm going to take two months off, I it would be meaningless if I stay on Facebook. So I got off Facebook and Twitter. So I made it such that I had no option to post on Facebook, post on Twitter, cruise Facebook or cruise Twitter. What did you do with your time? I read and I, after the first month I started working on this podcast season, I redirected my time to be like, okay, if right now I want to cruise a social media platform, I have to ask myself, what would I prefer to be doing right now? Do I want to watch a film? Do I want to read a book? Do I want to take a walk? Do I want to take a nap? anything's better than just cruising Twitter. You know, I, lo- I think a lot of people think that naps are lazy, but I think they're really good for you. Oh, so naps are fantastic. Them out. Oh yeah, I agree. But so even depolarize, which at the time was kind of a spare time thing. It was like, well, I'll interview one person I think is interesting. I'll send it to Chad. He'll edit it and I'll put it up. It went from being that to being like, well, what could I do with this? Like, could I be more ambitious? And now we have the current version of the show with you and I, it's far more complicated, took a lot more time, but you know what? I didn't spend 600 hours doing scrolling Facebook. Yeah. I think we're all glad for that. (laughs) The world is better. That's true. Now I'm not the only one thinking about the trade-off between productivity and social media. Here's Greg Tomlin. You'll remember him as one of our 19 percenters from episodes one and two. So there's this transitional housing development that's about a mile down uh, from our house, and it's a great charity, and my wife has been volunteering at it for about the past four years, and finally she just said, Greg, you should get involved, you should do this with me, and I finally stopped making excuses for why I was too busy in my life to do this, and after the first couple sessions, I have to tell you, I got more out of that and felt I was making more of a difference in my world than I ever have in posting some article online or arguing with some celebrity on Twitter. What what kind of work do they do there? So it's moms with children who have either been abused or have been homeless, and they get a temporary housing stay as they study finance, as they get regular jobs, and then they stay for a certain amount of months, and then they go out and find their own apartments after that. And so this is the kind of thing that anybody, left or right, should be totally pumped about. Anybody should. These are people who are down on their luck, that have suffered greatly, but are trying to do the right thing and getting their life back on track and are not wallowing in their sorrow, which they could and they they would be justified in doing, but they're picking themselves up and going, I want to better myself. I want to better my children's future. I just need some help at this temporary time. And you give me the resources, you give me the education, and you give me the wherewithal, and I will make something of my life. There's one more element to social media use that might be worth talking about. Here's Donna Freitas again. But I think part of being a critical thinker about it is asking yourself, what is healthy for me and what is not? Do I feel healthy? Do I feel good when I'm online? Does it bring me joy? You know, when I'm, when I'm scrolling on Facebook and, and I think if the answer is no, or if the answer is really mixed, people need to ask themselves, well, what, what is this serving in my, in my life? And I would say that I've had, you know, friends who are really trying to get pregnant and who haven't been able to, and going on Facebook 
and seeing the pictures of the baby bumps and all the birth announcements and like so and so is one and so and so is two and like you know ever all these cute pictures have just destroyed them why would you put yourself through that i guess like i do think making a choice in relation to we don't need to experience that kind of pain. You know, there, there can be a lot of fun that we have on, on social media, but I think we have to ask ourselves, when is it not so fun? Or when, is, when, is, when are the scales tipped? And I wrote in the end of The Happiness Effect that, you know, it's almost like our profiles are these photo albums of all our happiest moments. You know, I think about the photo albums that I made. I made two photo albums in high school. So I have these photo albums of like these happy memories, except... I would never in a million years, if I had a friend who was sobbing in front of me, I would never choose that moment to pull out the photo album and be like, look at my happiest moments, <laughs> because it's just not, it's not okay to do that. You wouldn't do that as a person. And I think there's a way in which by posting all of these glorious moments or even a baby bump, you would never in a million years want to show your best friend who's dying to have a baby and who's trying desperately to get pregnant and has spent the last five years trying to get pregnant and not getting pregnant, you would never decide to show her your sonogram picture as she's weeping about the fact that she just had another miscarriage. <laughs> and, but that is essentially what we're doing. I think that's a really good point. I don't think that she talked about intentions at all because, of course, no one's intentional. Of course not. That. But right. that's But that is essentially what's happening. It's the problem with the difference between being in a room with someone or being on a, the phone with someone and choosing a message to give that person intentionally and the posting of things publicly. What I worry about is that we've lost the art of being direct and being knowing our audience and knowing yeah. the room. I think teenagers right now... Maybe. I mean, who knows? I don't have one. I'm not one. But I think that that's sort of a lost art. Maybe it's not an art, but social skill. You know, actually, we didn't play the clip this week, but something that Donna found with some of her college students is that some of them have up to 10 different audiences. Like on Facebook, they have 10 different lists of people that they'll post this for this list and this other thing for that oh, list. I didn't even know you and could And so do it's that. like this weird <gasps> amalgam of the two. So they are being specific, but it's still all public, right? It's yeah. just only these people can see it. It's like a weird monster I think that version. That's great though that that's an option, but it's that's so extreme. Just like It's it, Frankenstein-y, right? Yeah, it just seems like a lot of work when you could just if you really want to show someone a picture, just text them and say, look, I'm in Barbados. No right, one goes to Barbados. Well, <laughs> so I have found that now that I've been off, if I see something funny or this particular thing is interesting, I just think who would find this funny? Yeah. Or who you think is about your four best friends yeah. that you'd want to tell. And I text way. them or I send them the photo you know, or I call it, them. It was recently Easter and I saw a great um, I don't know. I think it was on Twitter. Someone said how no one mentions Jesus's miracle that he had 12 best friends in his 30s, <laughs> which I think is brilliant. That's because, a miracle. Yeah. You know, it's hard to have more than a handful. It is. And I will say that getting off of these social media platforms, my friendships with the people that I really want to be close with have improved. Yeah. That's 
for sure that's happened. That's been one of the biggest consequences that I've I mean, that I've I think anytime you're kind of isolated, that has to happen. You reach out. I mean, when I became a mom, I became very isolated. And my friends now are these close people that I have chosen because they, they get it, one, but because I can't, I just don't have the energy. I can't, I can't. Yeah. Well, neither you nor I is going to have the last word this week. I want it. We're going to let Greg have it. So here's Greg Tomlin again, giving us a little bit of perspective. One of the things I would like to advocate for in this podcast in particular is don't feel like you have to be constantly reading every news story every day about really complex, difficult issues and be able to argue about it with your friends. I think we would do our part in saving the world if we were a lot more concerned with what was happening within a five-mile radius of where we live. And I know that's a radical idea, but get out of social media, get out of Facebook, Twitter, and see if you can volunteer at a church next to your house. Get to know your neighbors, shake their hands, invite your neighbors over for dinner. You will do far more in saving the world if you do that than if you read six news articles a day about uh, Obamacare or Trump care. Like I mentioned before, if we tried to foster good relationships between one another of those people within our immediate vicinity, we would do far more to heal this land than make sure we elect that one right person that is going to get in office and change everything for the better. I hate that over the past, what, 20 years or maybe even less, that we think politics is the end-all, be-all now. I don't know how that happened. I think part of it was media-driven and the 24-hour news cycle and ratings-driven and social media-driven because we're able to live in this abstraction, sort of, not the real world. We're able to live online and in the digital world. So we think, oh, these things are really immediate and really important. And oh my gosh, Judd Apatow and Michael Ian Black and Trump are all tweeting about the same thing. I don't know these people. I'm never going to meet these people. Right. Why, why am I getting worked up over this? Why am I getting worked up over this column? Like, oh, my, I'm just giving you a hypothetical. Maybe my friend and I aren't on the best of terms right now. Maybe I could work on healing that <laughs> than worrying about these people I will never meet and yeah. don't care about me and I don't care about them. Gosh, just make your world a little smaller. <laughs> Again, and there's I, an idolatry of the government will fix everything on the right and the left. There are corresponding sure. yeah. corresponding versions. And it seems to me that Christianity ought to speak into both of those situations equally. So there is a lot in the show notes on this episode, articles that we've referenced, Donna's book, etc. And I also would highly recommend this a very long, very well-written article by Andrew Sullivan. We're also going to put a link here. It's called, I Used to Be a Human Being. It is the reason that I first made a move and I turned off notifications. So before I went off social media, I at least turned off notifications. And his piece is basically why. Highly recommend people read that. Andrew Sullivan. Andrew Sullivan. Okay. He is a gay Republican Christian who writes for New York Magazine. That makes a lot of sense. He is one of my very favorite writers. Now, I think, Ellen, we should, instead of using our normal outro music, it's just, it's just too oh, good. Oh, God. <laughs> it's too like, good. You know I what don't I'm even gonna, know what's coming, but you I just, know, you I'm know. already bracing myself. No, Let's you know. Let's just go for it. Okay. Hallelujah. See you in the rapture.
be, you know, too weird, but I'll sit the ticket again. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. I haven't slept in two years. <laughs> well, that's because you have a baby.